0: Welcome to The Conversation. I'm Benjamin Dixon, host of The Benjamin Dixon Show. Joining us today is Mustafa Tamiz. He is a democratic strategist. He is a former consultant, Department of Homeland Security, a Director, US State Department's Countering Violent Extremism Exchange. Mustafa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about your work? And as we've come to this We've come to this one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. Um, Tell us about your work and how it intersects with this anniversary.
1: You know, I've done a lot of police training uh, and implicit bias training. We trained all 5,200 of Houston Police Department. um, every officer. And our training is different in that we do experiential training. We put officers in the shoes of community members, members of the victim family, members of the press, members of the elected body. And as if they walked into a community meeting after an incident. Mm-hmm. And we do real life scenarios. And the idea is to basically put them in the shoes of others. And as they do to build empathy for what others are are, are seeing and facing in case of these tragedies and and that's been a very effective way of not just training but but trying to change the culture yeah. inside police departments
0: you know as we you you discuss those things it has the um it reminds me of the diversity and inclusion movement that happens across the country in, in corporate america um and while these are like on two totally different sides of the spectrum in terms of of seriousness because you're dealing with implicit biases that could lead to the death of somebody and you're trying to get these officers to empathize with um minorities black people in particular with their humanity is there how does that is it working one And have you have have they considered those ramifications? Like they're talking about our lives here. Well, you know the thing is, when you get into these conversations, often we're talking at
1: people, Mm -hmm. not talking with people, or 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 even just really facilitating Mm conversations within officers. Mm -hmm. You know, we forget. Now, officers live in these communities. You know, the Houston Police Department, for example, is you know 54% minority, right? I mean, so you're really facilitating conversations amongst each other, rather mm-hmm. than just talk at them. And when you do, it's amazing the conversations that emerge. And so, look, there are no easy solutions to this. We didn't get here overnight. There are no single reasons as to why we're here, and we're not going to get out of this by any one solution. What I think has to happen is, is we have to walk in each other's shoes. We have to know the pain and 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 the, literally the, the feeling of crisis when an African American mom sees her son walk outside that house and what she's feeling, what she's thinking. Right. At the same time, you know, we got to put ourselves in, in the shoes of police officers sometimes. That you know, in the middle of the night, a walk, approach a car, not knowing when they you know. Put that flashlight. What's going to happen? Who's on? Who's sitting behind the wheel of that car? And what's going through their heart when that happens. So yeah. these are complicated things, and 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 we have to kind of put the humanity in people and be generous with each other as we think about this, as we talk about this. At the same time, we've got to move forward in public policy. We've got to right. have some consequences when things right. go wrong.
0: Right, right, I, and I definitely can can meet with you there in the terms of the public policy, right? Because the questions that I would want to ask would be along the lines of why did the police officer pull us over in the first place? right? What are those things that caused them to pull us over and, and create these encounters that so many of us have? Because there's so many of us like as we think about George Floyd, like he got pulled over for a counterfeit. Um and, and you know, we we're living in somewhat of a police state where every infraction that comes from the black community could in and, and, and from impoverished communities can be met with with the full force of the police state. Um but that comes to the question of policies. Talk about Congress and the changes that are possible. Mitch McConnell just said yesterday anyone who would talk about defunding the police is a fool. And then he went on and said, you know, we can't possibly get rid of qualified immunity because if we get rid of qualified immunity, police officers can't do their job. What is your perspective and how do we get it done in Congress?
1: Well, look. You know, doctors don't have qualified immunity. I can go on and on. A number of people don't have qualified immunity, and I think it's a worthy conversation to have. I am very optimistic because I know Congresswoman Karen Bass, who's the former chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. What most people don't realize is that she's also the the former speaker of the California Assembly. Mm-hmm. Here's somebody who has been working on this issue. Uh, since the early '70s, she's someone who's patient, somebody who has been an experienced legislator. Uh, she, she has the 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 temperament to work the legislative process and work both sides of the aisles to make this happen. Uh, uh, you know, Senator Kerry, Cory Booker, uh, who who is not someone who's um, you know just articulate, as people say. They they hear his speeches and his passion. But someone who you know lives uh, still to this day uh, in Newark, right, and lives in, in in that challenging environment, and understands that this is important not just as a black man, uh, or as a senator, but someone who still you know could be stopped <laughs> and, yeah. and, and something can happen. And then, and lastly, I, I Senator Tim Scott, uh, who uh, is uh, you know continually working on this and. Uh, right and then the rapport that the three of them have built with each other uh to say that we're going to work through this uh president biden has put a, a a big focus on this and given time and and, and really uh mm-hmm. shed the light on this so i i feel very Optimistic that the the three of these individuals under under President Biden that something's going to happen and something. And what does that
0: something what does that something look like? Is it are we looking at getting rid of qualified immunity? Are we are we you know because one of the things George Floyd's family said um, on Roland Martin um, a couple you know last week it was just last week that was the year anniversary they said they would not attach their names. The name of their of their brother George Floyd to a piece of legislation that isn't effective. So, to you, what is an effective piece of legislation that you would expect to get out of those three Congress people?
1: Well, what I think is important element of qualified immunity is accountability. Like you cannot have, we cannot move forward and say the legislation just bans a chokehold. Of course, it should ban a chokehold, right? Right. We cannot just say that the, the legislation bans a, a no knock warrant. Of course it should ban a no knock warrant, right? right? But there has to be some sense that a police officer, if he's fired that one, he, he should be able to be fired, right? But but two, right. if he's fired that he can't go on to another police department, just get a job in, in another police department and just keep doing this. We right. have to find a way that there's accountability to this and then we can put a stop to the madness once we know that we've got a, 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 a bad actor. Yeah. So, there has to be some kind of a, a way to come to this. There has to be a way that we all build consensus around it. And I know, look, this is not an easy topic, and I know that there's going to be have to be give and take. Right. The families have been very clear that they want some, you know, that they want some type of a qualified immunity in this. But I also think that <coughs> there's a recognition that we cannot be at a stalemate forever. That right. something has to be done, and even if it's incremental, that something has to be done. And, and right. I, for one, find that we can't reach this point in history and basically stop at. We tried really hard, really, really hard, but we couldn't get the Republican vote, so we're done. We, we did, well, I think That's just <laughs> unacceptable. I just think it. I, I just yeah. think that we've gone through so much and. Yeah.
0: We just can't have that happen again. You know, and and because the stakes are a lot higher, and Republicans are playing for keeps. Um, I am curious, from from your perspective of your work, as you're working with these police officers, um, are they? We only have about two minutes here, but I want to circle back to the first question. Do you see a disconnect in, in how they perceive the humanity of black people? Um, or, or or you see more humanity there than maybe we give them credit for? You know, you, here, Here's what I've learned, right? I, I think that
1: whenever we see a group of people as monolithic, we all make the mistake. When police officers will see any group of people as monolithic, they make the mistake. And when we see all police officers As monolithic, we make the mistake. I think there's good and bad in each of us. I think there's systemic problems in the system, and we have to stop talking past each other and looking for some tangible solutions. We've got to do training that changes culture within departments. And I think we have to tackle this, and it's going to take us some time to get through this. And there won't be one, there's no silver bullet in this. We've got to, we need each other. Yep. To get through it. And we've got to get past the partisanship to get there.
0: And it's hard, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Just, just I thank you so much for your time, Mustafa. It, it was definitely a pleasure meeting you and hearing about your work. Thank you. And tell the people how they can get up with you. But also, I just want to make sure that you relay the message they're the ones with the guns. You know, we, we may be talking past each other, but they are the ones with the guns. Tell the people how they can get up with you.
1: Well, the best way to get a hold of me is on Twitter. You can find me Mustafa Tamiz on Twitter. It has become the modern day way of us to publicly Man, communicate. It's and awesome. I will, and I'll say this: that there's a big debate on this country about how we police ourselves, right? Yeah. But at the end of the day, we need police officers, and the police officers
0: need us. We got to yeah. work this out. Mustafa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Welcome back to the conversation. I am Benjamin Dixon, host of the Benjamin Dixon Show. I'm joined now by Robin Bravender. She is a policy correspondent for The Insider. Robin, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: The pleasure is ours. So I was reading the possibility of Donald Trump. Like it's a nightmare scenario. It is. It is every liberal's worst dream that Donald Trump would somehow not only win in 2024, but he could govern as president of the United States from prison. Am I hearing, did I read that title correctly?
2: Absolutely, it was a question that came up in our reporting. And so we decided to ask some constitutional law experts and their answer was a resounding yes, it's no problem. And in fact, it's been done before.
0: Okay, so there's two absurdities there, let's start with the first one. It's been done before. Who, how, when, where, and
2: why? <laughs> so Eugene Debs ran as a socialist candidate back in 1920. He was serving in an Atlanta prison. He actually did pretty well. Got got a small slice of the voting electorate, did not win. And then Lyndon LaRouche ran in 1992. He was serving a sentence for mail fraud at the time. But he was a bit of a fringe candidate.
0: Mm. Okay, so I, you know, I guess there's a fondness in my heart for Eugene Debs because he did say if he, if there's a criminal element, he is of it. So I definitely get his position there, a little socialism insider. So tell us more from the liberal perspective, like, because I, I say from the liberal perspective because this sounds like it's written to actually terrify liberals, people who wanted to get back to normal, wanted to get back to brunch, and just wanted some peace and calm. But now they have in the back of their minds a lingering fear that this man, if everything went wrong, he could be president from prison. It's been done before, how could it happen now?
2: Yeah, it's absolutely possible. And of course, we we know that no charges have been filed against Trump, so this remains very theoretical. Mm-hmm. But you have, A lot of ongoing legal investigations into him, some which appear quite serious. At the same time, he's telling his advisors that he wants to run in 2024. Mm -hmm. Um, So if if those things collide, um, he could run. There is nothing in the Constitution that bars someone in prison from running for president, as we know. Um, It could get complicated, and we talked to folks about the logistics. Um, he he couldn't have campaign rallies from prison. He would have to rely on surrogates. Um, and then and then he could win and potentially govern from from prison if if necessary. He would need to take the oath of office. He could do that from anywhere. we saw we saw Lyndon Johnson take his oath of office on Air Force One. So there's precedent for some of these things.
0: Yeah, no, it's terrifying. Um it's terrifying because we could totally see this play out just like that. Um we could see a play out where Donald Trump has Trump Jr and Eric Trump um at the rallies while he's in a jumpsuit. So we could see this playing out in a really uh possible fashion, but First, he has to get convicted in the first place. I mean, there, I think there, there's more of a chance for Donald Trump to win presidency from behind prison for then to actually see him be held accountable for the things that he's done. So talk about it from that perspective. To what degree should people be concerned at this level when there's very seldom any accountability for rich white men in this country?
2: It is seen as extremely unlikely that Trump will be convicted. Of course, a lot needs to play out before any of this happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's facing serious charges in New York and in Georgia. Um, some of the things we we discovered in our reporting is uh, the pardon issue. So if Trump were to be convicted, um, if it's a federal crime, he could perhaps pardon himself. <laughs> He could perhaps designate the White House as his prison cell. He might have that power. So a lot of interesting hypotheticals to wow. think about here. Um, another thing that that came up that legal professors told us is um, Trump could use this prospect um, to run again. So if if he in fact went to prison, he could say, um, "I'm gonna I'm gonna try to run to get myself out of prison." <laughs> that seems like a long <laughs> shot. It seems like he wants to run anyway.
0: Stranger things have happened though. You know, you think about you 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 think about Donald Trump becoming president in the first place. I mean, he's rich, we get that, but I mean he he presented in the exact opposite way that anyone would expect the president of the United States to have some requirements, right? You have to have something, some standards. And Donald Trump didn't have to worry about that. So he made he made it all the way to the White House on an absurdity. That's why somebody that's why this article exists, because Stranger things have happened so is this something that you feel um, they should be concerned about and if so what can be done what does this say about how Democrats should approach politics
2: yeah absolutely I, I don't have advice for Democrats but um you know it absolutely can be can be done and and if Trump has shown us anything it's um, it's that he is willing to test the bounds of of the Constitution and the law um, mm. And, and folks who know the Constitution and politics well said, you know, we we've learned to to not count anything out with Donald Trump.
0: Wow, that is absolutely um, that is that is a terrifying notion. Um, tell us a little bit more than in in terms of your work and what led you to this particular narrative.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, we had this This started back when Trump was still in office and, and folks were asking what happens if he won't leave? This is one of those outlandish questions that, um, that people were asking at the time. So they said, what what if Trump won't leave? Would, would Secret Service um, be responsible for dragging him out? And unfortunately, it didn't come to that. But Secret Service agents at the time were talking about it and they weren't sure what the <laughs> answer would be. Um, so we know Trump left willingly. Um, that led us to do some reporting about Secret Service and whether they would have to guard him if he went to prison. And that was another thing former agents were talking about. And they said, wow. absolutely, if Trump winds up in prison, the Secret Service would would be charged with protecting him. So one thing led to another, and here we are.
0: Fascinating to think that their careers could lead them into prison in order to serve you know, their capacity as Secret Service agents, they would have to become essentially prisoners. What does this say? I mean, I think underlying this conversation really is this, this real fear that our system isn't really built on much other than our agreements. And that if you get somebody like Donald Trump in power who ignores those agreements, then it's almost like there's no adult in the room, and everyone's looking at each other like, "What do we do next?" And we're in the uncharted territory. Do you do you get that sensation as you observe and as you speak to all these people involved on in the federal level?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you talk to Democrats in Congress, they say Trump really showed where the limits of the Constitution are. Um and a lot of Democrats were hoping for massive reforms after Trump. As you know, we haven't seen much of that, and, and there is absolute gridlock on Capitol Hill. But um Trump Trump really did show what the limits are and, and what the um problems are with, with the constitution. But it doesn't look like a lot's gonna be done about right, it.
0: Right. Right. So we have the situation where everyone's looking around and realizing there's no adults in the room but they don't want to do anything to fix it let's talk about really briefly what are some of the things that congress could do just as a matter of of their constitutional authority to actually fix some of these problems of having a strong man like donald trump who if we get a strong man in power who ignores the norms and institutions all the way to the point where they don't leave office we don't really have protocol of how to solve that. So, what are some of the things that Congress should be addressing when we look at these very serious issues?
2: Yeah. Well, congressional Democrats would tell you um, there is a lot they want to do to um, to increase the the checks and balances and increase Congress's role. Um, Trump really did strengthen the the reach of the executive branch. Um, and Congress has always has always been willing to do that before, but but Trump is a, a different creature, um, sure. and a, a lot of Republicans are unwilling to do anything that would be seen as retribution against him. So again, wow. we're probably not going to see a lot of action on that front.
0: Wow. And so in order to, it's that's strange because they see the problem. Um, and I think people do understand the scale of the problem. Like we're we're really talking about the whole ball game here, the American Democratic experiment. And we're testing it. We're doing a stress test with Donald Trump. And the institutions are looking like, well, yeah, maybe we can accommodate him. But I guess my next question would be, can they accommodate the next iteration of him? What's coming next? Because Donald Trump, a lot of the things he didn't get accomplished was because he was an oaf. But what about the next strong man who's very efficient? Is anybody talking about that?
2: Yeah, I, I get the sense on on Capitol Hill that their their current concerns are are still Trump and there's you know there's a concern from Democrats about what happens if someone else likes that uh, comes like this in the future. Um, we've seen what can happen in terms yeah. of of the executive power. Um, but then then they talk about well there's potentially Trump again in 2024. So it's it's not yeah. so much a, a hypothetical as as Trump coming back at yeah. the moment.
0: Coming back. And then not only that, not only will he be able to come back, but he would potentially be able to do so even if he's incarcerated. Robin, you have written like this This story rather is so terrifying, especially when you think about some of the priorities of a lot of people across this country. Thank you so much for coming on and discussing it. Tell everyone how they can get up with you.
2: Oh, Absolutely, you can follow me on Twitter, it's just at Bravender. Or email me anytime, rbravinder at insider.com.
0: Awesome, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.